Again, let me say good morning, and I want to begin by saying thank you. Uh, thank you. I want to reiterate what BJ announced. Thank you for participating in this survey you may see there. Um, it may be easier for you, the hardest thing in the world is to find a pencil or something to write with. And so if you text the word survey, I'm just going to put it up there again. If you text the word survey to 256-291-0511, that same survey can be uh, taken, you know, uh, uh, on the uh, interwebs, and then tomorrow um, we'll send out uh, an email to everybody. It'll be the exact same thing, so you don't have to take it once. And I want to reiterate, it is not a test. Uh, your performance on this survey in no way impacts my grade, uh, but you would be doing it as a great favor to me. In fact, this, uh, this Sunday, really starting next Sunday, begins, well, I guess this Sunday, begins seven weeks of this uh, doctoral research project. And uh, so there'll be forms every, like every week from now for the next seven weeks. There'll be all sorts of things to fill out and sermon feedback forms and all this stuff. And so um, we can get through this together. Uh, and so you're getting a doctorate of ministry and you're getting a doctorate. You're all getting And uh, but seriously, thank you for helping me out with that. What a great uh, uh, sort of new chapter or, or, or back to an older version of the way we did Sunday. Whatever. I'm glad you're here. I'm especially grateful to those of you who had to rearrange your Sunday morning. Everybody's been so flexible. Thank you. Really through the whole, this whole COVID-19 thing. And I know we're not through it, but so, so grateful for a church that's like, hey, let, let's roll. Let's figure this out together. And I just want to say thank you. Folks have been so, so gracious through all this. Our great desire is to see everybody plugged into that Sunday school class. And so if you don't have a Sunday school class, please just linger around for a few minutes and look confused. Someone will come by and say, would you come with me? If you see someone that you know that's not in a Sunday school class, would you just drag them forcibly to yours? And, uh, but let them know. We want you, and we want you to feel invited. And speaking of those that may be new, next Sunday... January was it January 31st next Sunday four o'clock will be our next discover first so for anyone considering membership you got question about baptism Sunday school classes all that stuff right here in the lobby four o'clock next Sunday and you can RSVP you can just uh, 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 let us know uh, you're coming or not just show up uh, next Sunday four o'clock we'll see you there discover first for uh, uh, mem uh, membership class all right, well, let's get to it. Leviticus chapter 19. If you, uh, we're going to open up to Leviticus chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 9. If you were here last week, you know, we, I, I had every intention of preaching on giving, right? I, every January I do a stewardship series, but I felt like before we just look at an Old Testament passage, particularly one that deals with money or giving, better to first lay the groundwork with a larger question of, how do Old Testament laws, particularly the laws of Moses, how are they to be read and applied to New Testament Christians? And so um, we, we know that, uh, that, that the laws of Moses were given to the children of Israel in ancient times. How, how, as we're reading through Leviticus and we get to some of these verses in the law code, what are we supposed to do with them? And I hope it was helpful. I, I did have some positive feedback. Uh, somebody uh, said it was very timely. They had just been accused of being a cafeteria Christian, meaning they sort of like at a cafeteria. You take some food, I'll oh, take that, leave that, take that, leave that. And it was... Um, Helpful to see, okay, well, why do we, we follow certain commands and yet uh, others seem to be modified in the New Testament? One 
question you can ask of any command as you're going through the Old Testament law, especially if you're doing that read through the Bible and you're getting there, you can ask of any Old Testament law, you can ask this question. How does the New Testament, does the New Testament ratify, modify, or abrogate this command or this law? Let me say it again. Does the New Testament ratify, modify, or, and I'd give anything if abrogate rhymed with a phi. Ratify, modify, or abrogateify. Uh, that's not a word. Uh, uh, you could say nullify. It doesn't really do. Abrogate. How does it ratify, modify, or abrogate this command in the New Testament? Let me give you some examples. Ratify. That means you take from the Old Testament and you just carry it right over to the New Testament. And the New Testament does that. So if you are a New Testament Christian, in Old Testament law, if it's been ratified in the New Testament, you're still under, under the law of Christ. Of course you're supposed to follow that command. Let me give you an example. Uh, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 19, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the New Testament, Jesus ratified that command. In Matthew chapter 22, here's how he said it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See? Ratified. Some, however, get modified. The Old Testament law about Sabbath means from sundown Friday night until sundown Saturday, no work, no earning of income. On this. Jesus, in the New Testament, modified the Sabbath, and he said, come to, you want rest? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. So in the New Testament, we see that our true Sabbath is in Christ. That's why in Colossians chapter 2, it says, don't let anybody judge you because you follow a certain day of rest, and this one follows a different Sabbath. Don't let anybody judge you. Why? Because that was just a shadow of what's to come. Christ is the substance, Colossians 2, 16, 17 says. So that Sabbath command is an example of one that was modified. We still need a rhythm of rest and renewal, but it doesn't have to legalistically be from Friday night to Saturday night sundown. And then some are abrogated. Abrogate is a $5 word. Abrogate. That may be a $10. Abrogate is a big word that just means set aside. And an example of a law that was abrogated would be the kosher food laws. So in Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. That just goes out his digestive system. No, what defiles a person is what comes out of their heart. That's what I'm here to deal with. And in Mark 7, it says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And so those laws were abrogated. So you, that's another way to look at, another angle of this, because I don't just want to, I don't want us to read to Leviticus chapter 19, start in verse 9. And our text today is a great example, or any of these commands, and just sort of, I want us to know what to do with these. Look at Leviticus 19.9. When you, here's a, here's a law about farming. You ready? When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not Strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So there you go. That's a perfect example. How does somebody, as a New Testament Christian living in America in 2021, what are we supposed to do about an ancient uh, uh, law about agriculture from ancient Israel? Because there's really only one or two options. Either you read this and you go, well, like, I don't own a farm. <laughs> so, like, the Bible doesn't really apply to me. And that's my problem. I read through this stuff and it's like, I don't own a farm, right? So that's no good. 
Or, and this may be worse, because it's very possible that many of you are like, I do own a farm. There's lots of farms in Coleman County. So you read this and you're like, I own a farm. And I'm farming in sin. It's a farm, farm abomination. Like, uh, I've been reaping all the way. I've been getting maximum yield from my fields. And some of you are doing the math. I mow my lawn. And I mow all the way to the edge. Sometimes I'm such a sinner, I weed eat. I go all the way, right? And then it says, don't gather the gleanings. I bag my grass. Oh, Lord, like what do I do, right? Have I been farming in sin if I've been gathering all the edge of the glean? Am I supposed to read Leviticus 19, 9 and 10 and go, I've been doing it wrong. And I've been, I was supposed to leave it for the poor and the sojourner, the foreigner, the traveler. I'm supposed to left the edges of my grain field so that if someone is, happens to be walking from Rainsville to Coleman and they're passing through on foot Holly Pond randomly, and they happen to have something with which to grain, grind some grain, I was supposed to leave that for them. And I've been robbing them all this time. Uh, and that re- it reminds me of a, a few years ago, I read this wickedly funny book by A.J. Jacobs called Year of Living Biblically. And it is this very funny, very smart-alecky, sarcastic, of course, New Yorker, who... Um, uh, this writer who lives in New York City and tries for one solid year to literally follow all 613 laws of Moses, but do it as a modern-day New Yorker. This is not a Christian book by any means. Very funny. And, um, and he talks about how uh, uh, when he gets to Leviticus 19.9, he can't figure out how to do the gleaning law because he doesn't live in an agricultural society. So he, he, he does it this way. His, his paycheck gets deposited electronically, and he goes to the, there's this funny scene where he goes to the ATM and, of course, it's, you don't even have to go into the bank. It's just right there in the sidewalk, hundreds of thousands of people passing behind you. And when he gets the money out, it comes out in 20s. And he, he like, like, intentionally drops the top 20 and let it fall to the ground and, like, walks off because he, he's not supposed to take all of it. He's supposed to leave some. And it falls to the ground. And it, no matter what you've heard about New Yorkers, they're very kind. And so it's this scene where people are, like, chasing him down, like, sir, you dropped this. And he's like, no, I mustn't. It's for the poor and the sojourner. And they get in this big fight. Um, like, is that the application? Is that, the, is that what you're supposed to do? When it comes to following the Lord, are you supposed to deposit your check electronically, go to the ATM, and just fling, take all the 20s except one and let it go and leave it for the poor and the sojourner because, and don't even think, don't even think about if you drop a $20 bill, don't you dare go back and pick it up because the next thing you know, you'll be uh, eating the rock badger and growing out the sides of your hair at the temples. It's, it's a gateway sin. You understand? So what are we supposed to do then? What do we do? What do we do? Are we, are we helpless and hopeless when it comes to Leviticus chapter 19 verse 9? What does a New Testament Christian do? No, you say. Why? Because I've been given a key that helps me unlock the treasures of this verse. Really? Yes. What's the key? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Where did you hear a sermon on this? Oh. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, 
and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we're going to look at what this verse, how does it teach us, how does it rebuke us, how does it correct us, and how does it train us in righteousness so that we can take an Old Testament passage and apply it to our lives. So first, let's set the context. Leviticus, Leviticus 19. Leviticus is about holiness. Book of Leviticus is about holiness. Here's what God's saying. Israel, I called you out of Egypt. You're my special possession. And you're going to be set apart from all these surrounding pagan nations. You're going to be different from all these other pagan nations. They don't know me. They don't know my love. And so I'm going to set you apart from the foods you eat to the clothes you wear. You're going to be set apart. You're going to be different. You're going to be special. You're going to be whole. And the Bible word for all this is holiness. God is saying, I am holy, so you, my special people, are going to be holy. Holy God, holy people. That's really the message of Leviticus. Holy God, holy people. And God's saying here, part of what it means to be holy, part of how we're going to do this whole holiness thing is we're going to take special precautions on how we care for the poor and the immigrant, the sojourner, the traveler. We're going to take extra precautions on that. Why? Because you're going to be different. Hey, it's dog eat dog over in Canaan. Okay, those Babylonians say, look out for number one. You take care of your own. Forget about everybody else. No, you're going to be different, Israel. It's, it's, It's dog eat dog in Assyria, but that's how people who've never known my mercy work. That's how people who've never known my heart. That's how people who've never known my love. That's how they do it. Israel, we're going to do it different. We're not going to do it that way. And so in Canaan, they're going to look at you like you are crazy because they're going to go right up to the edge of their field. You're not going to do that. Here's the commands. In this verse, there are technically, I I see, four commands. Two about grain and two about grapes. And they're parallel. They're very simple. Verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. In other words, when you harvest your grain, don't take it all. Leave a strip on the edge unharvested. And the second part of this verse, neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. What does that mean? Well, inevitably, when you're harvesting, you drop, they harvested by hand. They didn't have these big, expensive combines. They, they did it by hand. Inevitably, some of the grain is going to get dropped or left when you're making your way to the wagon. Don't go back over it a second time. Don't go back over it with a fine-tooth comb. Leave it. Leave it for the poor and the sojourner. Same thing for your grapes. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I'm the Lord your God. When when you're harvesting grapes, when you're reaching in and you grab a handful of grapes, you inevitably can't get them all. So pull off what you can get. Harvest with that. You got two handfuls. Be satisfied with that and just move on. Side note, when I was a kid and my dad would make us pick blueberries, where was that? Could have used some Levitical law back then. That would have been a great mercy. Go back, get every last one of those. That's just a side note. Some of these grapes are inevitably going to fall. Don't go back over them. Leave some. Don't take as much harvest as you can. And all this is underscored and grounded by the fact, and it's repeated throughout Leviticus, I am the Lord your God. You don't have to follow this command because you think it's good. You might agree with it. You might not agree with it. Your opinion is irrelevant. You're going to follow it. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. Do you know that? If he's the Lord, he's the Lord. Did you know that? Here's a sentence I want you to think about. You can say no. 
And you can say, Lord. But it makes no sense. There's no such sentence that says, no, Lord. If he's Lord, it's, sir, yes, sir. Or you can tell him no, because he's obviously not Lord. But don't think for a second you can say, no, Lord. You've got to change one of those. Hey, I'm the Lord, your God. That's, so this is how we're going to do it. Now, what is the point of this passage? So here we are. We've got the commands. We've got the context set. I think we're in good position now to read it as a New Testament Christian. And it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So is there anything that we can glean from this passage? I worked so hard on that. There is. And I just numbered the points here. Here's what I think we can take away. The first thing I think people would say is, um, uh, b- b- before I get to that point, the, the, I think if we just read this to a little kid, I think they would say the point is obvious. They say, what's the point of this? Don't be greedy. Right? Just don't be greedy. That's simple. Don't be greedy. That's not simple at all. That is not at all how we think of being greedy. When we think of someone who is greedy, that means it's a person who takes more than what is rightfully theirs. Isn't that a fair definition of greedy? Hey, 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 you're taking more than what's right. Every child gets a cookie. You took four, four. You're you're greedy, right? You took more than your allotment. That's how we think of greed. But that's not what this scripture says. In other words, if the command had said, when you harvest your field, you stay in your field. Do not. I don't want to hear about it. you went into your neighbor's field and harvested some of their crops because that's greedy. That's how we think of greedy. Here the command is, if you take every bit of what's already yours, you're greedy. Who's ever heard of that being the definition of greed? To take everything that's already yours. That's just it. And that's the first gleaning from the teaching on gleaning. So I just said, they all start with gleaning. And if you're a note taker, and you can write these down. The gleaning law was a declaration of who owned the land. The reason, the reason, make no mistake, this is a verse about stewardship. And the reason it is considered greed to take every bit of this, I own it, it's my field, I should be allowed to take every bit of what's already mine, that's just it. The number one rule of stewardship is that God owns everything. I am just his manager of the stuff. I'm a steward. God owns it. And he specifically says that in Leviticus chapter 25. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. Why? God says, for the land. Don't get this twisted. The land is mine. So the first thing you need to know about gleaning uh, uh, in terms of modern day application is we need to start thinking of everything we have, the means of production, the field, the produce, the income, every dollar bill in my billfold, every little digit in my Apple Pay, or every all the, the shoes and clothes and minivan, it all belongs to God. I'm the steward. And so when a ancient Israelite farmer was asked to leave the edges of the field, it wasn't too much for God to ask that. Why? Because whose field is it? It's God's field. It was a declaration of trust. God blessed me with these crops. Who sent the rain? God did. Who sent the sunshine? God did. Who gave you the knowledge to grow these crops? God did. So you know why you can be generous to the poor? Why? Because hadn't God been generous to you? You can trust him. There'll be another crop. You can trust him. You don't have to, you don't have to Get every drop. You, don't have, you can leave some on the table. Okay. It's a declaration. 
It's also a reminder, by the way, that we too were once sojourners, and God had to help us out. We were once strangers in a strange land. Uh, 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 we were once alienated from God, and he saved us. In fact, the, the, the whole gleaning thing comes up twice in Scripture in these famous stories. One is the book of Ruth. You remember this story, the love story? Ruth is a foreigner. She comes from Moab. Well, she comes back, but her, her, uh, 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 Naomi comes back. But Ruth was a foreigner coming back, and the owner of the field, Boaz, sees her, and they fall in love. You, you remember this story? The other one is, you know who else took advantage of the Levitical law of gleaning? It was this traveling rabbi with his 12 uh, disciples. It was Jesus in the Gospels. You remember this? And they stroll by the edges of the field on the Sabbath, and they take advantage. Why? Because they were poor. And everything, they were traveling through, right? And he does it on the Sabbath. So like the Pharisees pop right out of the cornfield, like, what are you doing on the Sabbath? And I'm always like, what were the Pharisees doing? Like in a cornfield on the Sabbath, clearly they were stalking him. Thank you. I didn't know. I didn't know. Because I was going to go with children of the corn, but I'm glad I chose stalking. Right? What would they do? Clearly, they're, they're, they're spying on. But Jesus, what's the point? The point is the one who was rich became poor for us in our salvation, didn't he? And we think of Leviticus 19. Jesus obeyed it by being the poor and the sojourner for us. It was a declaration. Another takeaway from gleaning, and uh, I guess this is somewhat of an aside, but not for nothing. It is a brilliant welfare program. In terms of caring for the poor and the needy, everybody talks about that, right? And on, on, politically, on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of the spectrum, I think everybody's concerned about how to best care for the poor. Um, uh, but, and these are sweeping generalizations, and by no means are they fair. They're just broad talking points, broad generalizations. Generally speaking, conservatives tend to want to solve the problem of poverty a little different than liberals do. And I think it's because uh, they both trace back the root of poverty to different uh, 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 stresses, different things that they would stress. Most of my conservative uh, brothers and sisters would say, we've got to help the poor, but, but, but we must be careful because the fundamental reason of poverty comes down to individual empowerment, individual choices. The reason a person is in poverty, they've made these choices, and many of them are lazy, and then they'll cite examples, and we all know of people who are totally gaming the welfare system. Yeah, and everybody's got a story of they were in Dollar General and somebody paid with food stamps and they walked out into this big, beautiful car that was nicer than theirs and thus, you know, and it's proven that, you know, it's because of laziness and people are cheating and, oh, okay. Um, my, li- my, my more liberal brothers and sisters would say, well, it's because, like, the system doesn't work for everybody. It's, the system is stacked. Again, and so we need big, sweeping, governmental, big societal changes. Like, at the legislative level, big civil sweeping legislation to try to address some injustice issues. They, 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 they don't have a fair shot. The systemically, they don't have a fair, fair chance. Now, th- this, was, this was brilliant about, uh, about, this, about, about God's heart. Like, who's right, who's wrong? Well, I would say, yeah. Yeah, of course. Are, are some people poor because they're lazy and refuse to work? Yes. Are some people poor because the system stacked against them? They didn't have near the advantages that other people have. Yes. So what do we need? Well, we need a big, broad, sweeping legislation that also honors the dignity of hard work. That would be Leviticus 19, 9, and 10. This is literally a big, broad, sweeping social law. That is the law for the theocracy Israel. 
but it also honors the dignity of hard work. Notice the command does not say, and when you harvest, care for the poor and the sojourner in the following way. Go to the very edges of your field, get all the grain, bag it up, box it, bake it into bread, and leave it on the doorstep for the poor. And do all... That's not what it says. It says what? It says they can get it. They got to work. And it honors the dignity of hard work. I never thought about this. I was reading this uh, Orthodox rabbi. He commented on this verse, and he was saying, see the heart of God? That's why he says, leave the edges of your field. Because if they're a sojourner, they may come from a land where they don't speak your language. And, 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 and if they're poor, they may be embarrassed. But if it's right on the edges, there's no questions. You don't have to show up with your hat in your hand and be like, hey, where did you leave the gleanings like, you know, for poor? There's no shame. There's no none of that. You, it's right there on the edges. Nobody can miss it. You don't have to take a test. You, don't, you, just, you just walk right up. Boom. There it is. See? Right there on the edges. Available. But you've got to work. It's not going to be boxed up and shipped to you. It's not a handout. It's a hand up. And that night, when that poor person is sitting around his dinner table, he can feed his family from the sweat of his own labor just like everybody else. And that preserves the dignity of hard work. You've got to be honest. It's, it's brilliant as a welfare program. It's almost like, you know, God wrote it. It was intentional. Now, now here, when we start talking about money, when we start talking about, I mean, stewardship, it was intentional. The farmer had to decide ahead of time, here's how much we are going to leave around the edges. The farmer could not say, and I know it was tempting, the farmer could not say, man, I, I worked hard for that. You know what? Just, just gather it all. Go back over it with a fine-tooth comb. Let's get all of it, and then we'll help the poor when we get around to it. Uh, it's not going to work that way. If you're going to be serious about your giving, if you're going to be serious about a heart of generosity and stewardship. And here I'm, I'm driving at something. I'm talking about being generous, giving to the church, whether it's, it's online and, and you're, you know, you're going online, and that, that, that recurring gift to First Baptist Church, Coleman, or, or uh, that, uh, you're writing a check or whatever. You, you, many of us are, 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 are spontaneous or, or haphazard. That's not this. This was thoughtful, systemic, pre-planned, premeditated, off-the-top way of giving. Why? Because if you want to get good at giving, it's got to be intentional, and it's got to be priority. If you want to get good at anything, it's got to be intentional, and it's got to be priority. If you say to me, hey, I, want to, I want to get in shape, I want to begin an exercise program, and this program of fitness is going to help me get in shape. Okay, great. When are you going to do your exercise program each day? I'm going to do it whenever I get around to it. You are not going to begin an exercise program. <laughs> Fact, right? If you say, uh, hey, I want to... Um, you know, I, I, if you go to a financial advisor and you say, hey, I, I really want to build wealth. I, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm not saving enough. I want to build wealth. Uh, 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 what's your advice? Well, what's your plan for building wealth? Are you going to have a portion taken right out of your paycheck and diverted into some uh, retirement or, or some savings account? No. I'm going to spend everything I need to spend, and if anything's left over, I'll save it. That ain't going to work, right? You know who really gets priority giving? You know the best example of priority giving? You know who does this? Uncle Sam, doesn't he? Uncle Sam understands priority giving. Because he, Uncle Sam, the government does not wait. Can you, can, can you imagine if they didn't take out a little bit of your paycheck every time? Can you imagine if Uncle Sam just said, you know what, y'all? Every April 15th, just square up with the government and pay what you owe in taxes. You'd have to build so many more federal prisons, Right? Because everybody gets to April 15th, like, okay, let's pay the, you know, all that money you owe in taxes. Oh, I don't have it. What do you mean you don't have it? 
yeah, I had every intention of paying it, but like the Polaris store had this sale. <laughs> you know, come on, you understand, right? Now I'm in jail. Do you, do you understand, right? Like, like the priority giving. You don't, you don't just wait and say, well, it, it, you know, it might happen, maybe. You decide ahead of time. And when it comes to giving, the reason the Bible talks about first fruits and talk is because Christians have been so radically changed by the love of God that at the end of my life, one of two things are going to be true, and I know which one I want to be true. When I look back at the way I stewarded finances, when I look back at the way I gave to the kingdom work through the local church, one of two things are going to be true. Did I give God the first and best, and I lived off the leftovers? Or did I always give myself and my family the first and best? And that means I gave God the leftovers. May it never be. It was intentional. It was priority. And not for nothing, it was percentage. You know, one of the amazing things about this gleaning law, if you think about it, it uh, so have you ever heard somebody say, like, live within your means, live beneath your means? That is such good advice, and I think it, it's, it, it totally applies to this. But the problem is, in modern America, we don't really know how to live within our means. Like, everybody lives on some portion of their income. You may, you may spend 100% of what you make. You may spend 60%. You may spend, like, 110%, and you're overextended on credit. But it's hard to know. But, man, if you had a field, and your field was your income, that, that is your harvest for the, yield, for the year. That's your yield. And all around is the edges. You would know exactly what percentage of your income you lived on. You'd be like... 18%. What makes you think you live on 18%? You, you live on the, oh, I should have picked an easier number. 18 minus 100. What percent would that leave for you? What is it? Yeah, 82. You live on the 82. I was told there'd be no math in this sermon. You live on the 82% and you left 18. How do you know? Behold, my field. Like, there it is. Count the grapes, man. Okay. It's hard to do that. But it's, it's perfectly obvious that they, that they were living on some percentage and some percentage was left on the table. That's one advantage. So you should maybe go home and ask and think about your family as you're looking for your looking ahead to the year. Think about tithing, giving, you know, tithing is when the percent happens to be 10, but what percent do we give? What percent do we save? What percent do we live on? At this point, I think most folks want to really get down to the brass tacks and they go, "Okay, okay. So so if it was a percentage, what percent should it be?" Well, that's the other thing about gleaning. It was unspecified. I think that's, that's worth pointing out. It, number four is it was unspecified. It, of, of course, eventually, it didn't take long, the legalists weighed in, and I, read, I heard not one but two rabbinical sources that went ahead and specified the percentage. They'd already given 10% tithe to the Levites. On top of that, the gleaning, would have, it would have amounted to about 15% of their field. I'm going, see, that's what legalism always does. It's rules upon rules. And that, to me, the point is, I, I don't know. The percent is never specified. I mean, how much of the edge should you leave? That's never specified. But we do know this. This is the last one. We do know this. Whatever percent, it was costly. It was costly. Let me ask you a question. Do you think it was easy for an ancient Israelite farmer to leave rows of expensive crops unharvested? Just leave it on the table. 
Some of the basic principles of farming have not changed in 3,000 years. The whole point of farming is to get the most yield possible out of a particular plot of dirt, to maximize the harvest, highest possible yield, and lower the cost of getting all that grain to market. That hasn't changed. And farming back then was risky business. Pests or disease, one stretch of bad weather or drought or bad luck could mean life or death. You had to sort of bet the farm, so to speak, every year on the seed and hope that it would produce a a harvest. Farming back then was risky business. Farming today is risky business. So so you're telling me you you have to risk, you have to sweat. That farmer labored over all those crops. He he poured his heart into that and he had these laborers and he's got bills to pay. And you're telling me I just have to leave that? I have to I have to not harvest that? I have to not take that as my own? I have to I sweat over this and I have to give it away? Oh Hold on now. I didn't say give it away. You leave it. Why? Because give it away makes you think it's yours to give. The land is the Lord's. So you start with it's the Lord's. Yeah, but I I worked for this income. I worked hard for this income. Who gave you the strength to work hard? I work hard at my job. Who gave you that job? Look, I make a good income, I earn a good living. It's because I work so hard, I got an education. Who gave you the brains for that education? Well, it's because of my talent and my skill. Who gave you that talent? Who gave you that skill? It's because of my investments. Who gave you the corpus to begin that investment? Hmm? Is the reason you've been blessed? Let's be honest. What's the real reason you've been blessed? Isn't it true? It's not because you're so educated, you're so strong, you're such a hard worker, and you're so smart. Isn't it because God has just been flat out gracious to you? Hadn't he been good to you, church? Been good to me? And this verse is real simple. If you've got the means of production, if if you've been blessed, bless others. Here's how I would frame this. You say, well, that feels awfully costly. Yeah, because it is. Giving was costly then, it's costly now. So let's bring this whole thing to a close. If you were reading through Leviticus and you came to this passage, this for me, this would be the ultimate way to sum up Leviticus 19, 9, and 10. And when I read it, I, this, is, this is what started like all those weeks ago, why I laid all that groundwork for, for, for Old Testament law. This is the payoff. This is what I came to share. Under the law of Moses, an Israelite farmer with a means of income was not allowed to live as well off as he could have lived. So what is the principle for New Testament believers? Believers, We're not under the law of Moses. We're under the law of Christ. What is it? What did I came to tell you? What does Leviticus 19, 9, and 10 say for those of us under the law of Christ? This. No Christian must live as well as as they are capable of living. That's it. No one. Not one. No Christian must live materialistically as well as they could live because they've given some. That's it. You should, every every blood-bought, born-again believer, according to the Leviticus 19 gleaning principle, should have a gap. They should be able to drive a little bit nicer car, have a little bit nicer home, have a little bit uh, uh, better uh, uh, Netflix experience. This is random. I don't know why. Everybody, everybody. But the gap. 
the gap. What's the gap? The gap is your generosity. And every blood-bought, born-again Christian has a giving gap between how they could be lived. In other words, you need to leave a little edges on them. You don't need to leave. You, you shouldn't live as high on the hog as you can live because you've given parts of the hog away to others. That, that analogy got away from me. But the, 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 I asked somebody, what does high on the hog mean? Well, you ever heard that? Man, you're living high on the hog. And uh, I asked the 8 a.m. service. I said, if anybody knows the etymology of that, tell me. And the guy came up to me and goes, it's simple. Would you rather eat pig feet, pig knuckles, ham, or ribs? I'm like, no, that's great. That's, that settles it. Apparently, the higher up you go on the pig, I'm, I'm talking about an, uh, a proper pig, not an inverted pig, but like a standing pig. Um, <laughs> In case anyone was imagining an upside down. This one got away from me. <laughs> there should be a giving gap. So, so it, listen, you may, the, the gap should grow, by the way, the more you've been blessed. Watch this. If you are poor, if you don't have very much income, the giving gap, oh, sorry, if you are a poor, born-again Christian, you don't have much income. You're living paycheck to paycheck. You're barely scraping by. You're, you're hustling. You're working three jobs. You're here, and you're hearing me say this. Listen, you'd say, yeah, boo, boo, boo. your gap, listen to me carefully, your gap's going to be very, very, very narrow, but there'll still be one. If all you have is one slice of pizza to your name, you give a pepperoni to somebody. Do you understand? I saw it happen with my own two eyes. I saw this homeless guy in New York. It was this food ministry we were doing. Homeless. Guy has nothing. Gets a slice of pizza. And there's his buddy. I saw him tear. He had one slice of pizza. Tore it in half and gave it to his friend. There it is. It's going to feel narrow. And it's going it's to hurt. Watch. Hey. But a lot of us aren't in that scenario, are we? And as our standard of living gets bigger and bigger, that gap between what we, how we could live and how we do live better get bigger and bigger and bigger, or as the book of James says, those riches that we've been hoarding are going to cry out in judgment against us. And, and so you need to ask yourself, is my standard of giving keeping pace with my standard of living? Because what happens is we get impressed with dollar amounts. Oh, I was able to give a lot more than I was back in college. I was able to give a lot more. Yeah, but the, you may, in fact, in percentage, be given less. Because isn't it true, a, a, a widow living on a fixed income may give a gift to the church that in the eyes of God is a lot bigger than a bazillionaire who's given and it doesn't even, he doesn't even feel it, right? So that, that, that gap, no, but, but no, no Christian must live as materially well as they're capable of living. Someone once, uh, many preachers have said it this way, when it comes to giving, it's not equal amounts, it's equal sacrifice. So, the musicians are going to come and lead us in a time of response. Brandon will come, and however he chooses to, to, to help us uh, shape our thoughts around this. I want to close with this thought. If you've failed in this area, I never want giving to be out of guilt or obligation. If you failed in this area, here, here's the grace. Here's the good news. You need to know this. Jesus Christ has fulfilled not only the law in the Old Testament about gleaning, he's fulfilled the law of tithing, he's fulfilled every law. So yes, you heard me say that. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament law about tithing. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Did you just say the tithing law has been fulfilled? Yep. I'm sorry, and this is a Southern Baptist church, just to be clear. Like you, <laughs> you're telling me the tithing law has been fulfilled. So I'm not set right with God based on tithing? Yeah, that, yeah, correct. Now what? 
Now what indeed? Now what? Now what? There's a test to know if you're still living in the bondage of legalism with a contractual relationship with God or you understand God's heart for generosity. It's a simple test. Here it is. What does your heart do? What does your heart do under these circumstances? If I told you that you could walk under the blessing of God and you would, you would, you would have his love, you'd, you'd go to heaven when you die, you have salvation, and you can never again give another dime to First Baptist Church Coleman or to any other church, you can no longer give to kingdom work. Now, even if you brought a gift today, you can't give it. Starting January 24th, 2021, you can never again get, you, you are not allowed to give. And you'll still have all the, the blessings of God and you'll, you'll get to go to heaven when you die. If, if your heart leaps up at that thought, it, you're in a contractual relationship with God. Listen, I'm in a lot of contracts right now. You are too. I got, I got a contract with a cell phone provider. I got a contract with a, with a, 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 a t- television and cable provider and internet. I got a contract with my a power company. I got all sorts of contracts. If my cell phone provider company came to me right now and said, we are going to continue to provide all the goods and services we've been providing. We are going to give you unlimited nationwide coverage. We're going to give you unlimited data and Wi-Fi. We're going to give you everything that you've been giving. And from now on, you never again have to pay a dime. I'm doing a cartwheel. I'm taking that deal. I'm telling everybody. This, you're, whoa, you're telling me I get all the blessings of the cell phone contract and I don't have to pay a dime? Woohoo! I'm taking that. Why? Because I don't love them. I'm in a contractual relationship with them where I'm trying to get all the goods and services I can for as cheap of the price. And if the price is zero, woohoo! I don't love them. But if you told me, Tom, you can never again give. To kingdom work. You can never again take money and give it, not just to the church, to the church you love. The First Baptist Church of Coleman, Alabama. I love the capital C church. But God didn't give me the whole universe of space and time to grow together and to learn, to raise our family and to practice love. He gave me you. He gave you me. We're in this together. Well, this is the church I love. And to give to kingdom work through this church, you're not allowed. You can never do that again. How does that make your heart feel? If you say, woohoo, I get all the blessings of God and never have to give, I would say, you don't know the first thing about love. You're not in love with God. You're in a contract where you're trying to get all the blessings you can for as cheap as possible. But if, if, if you heard that and your heart went, Oh, no, don't do that. Don't do that. No, don't, don't deny me that blessing. I love to give to God's word. Don't do that. That's like telling a worship leader, you can never again lead a hymn. You can never again sing a hymn. You can never again sing a song. He would say, don't, don't do that. Don't rob me of that way of worshiping and giving and gifting. That'd be like telling the physicians and the nurses in our congregation, you can never again use God's gift of healing to heal a life and to touch and to restore health to somebody. He'd say, don't do that. Don't rob me that. See? Then, that's what giving does to your heart. That's good. It's a test, and it shows you. You're developing a heart of generosity. Developing, that's the heart of Leviticus. That's the heart of a holy God who's given everything for us. Let's pray.
God, thank you for your generosity. Thank you, God, that you own the whole field. You own the whole land. Thank you, God, that for many of us, we can only say we, we've been blessed and we have learned we cannot outgive you. But God, thank you for the great privilege of worshiping you through singing music. Thank you that we worship you through hearing and applying your word. Thank you for the ability to worship you corporately through prayer. Thank you for the ability to worship you through the giving of tithes and offerings. God, grant to us a proper understanding of the Old Testament law that we might be taught and rebuked and instructed and corrected and trained in righteousness. We ask this, Lord. And if there's somebody here who doesn't know you today, let today be the day where they, 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 they see your heart and they realize they're the one that's alienated, but they can be brought into the family of God today because you who are rich gave everything on the cross for us and you're alive today inviting people to follow. God, grant that. And let those of us who claim your name, who love you, develop a greater and greater heart of love that overflows in generosity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.